I don't know if she's still alive or not. They've had her now for the past 24 hours. I'm equally uncertain as to the fate of her father, Professor Elliot. Both are probably dead. The odds are 100 to 1, I too will be finished before another sun rises. But tonight I'm going to try to fight for my life and those larger issues so perilously at stake affecting all mankind. I'm Captain Kirk. Ladies and gentlemen, may I present the winners of the 74th Annual Hunger Games. I'm the doctor, by the way. What's your name? Rose. Nice to meet you, Rose. Run for your life. My name is Optimus Prime. I am the future of war. Resistance is futile. Jedi's strength flows from the Force, but beware of the dark side. It's got a nice ring to it. I mean, it's not technically accurate. It's, it's a gold titanium alloy. I'm sorry, David. I'm afraid I can't do that. This is uh, Reed's Cold, and you're listening to Trex and Sci-Fi. Happy Father's Day, everybody. This is Mark Daniels from the Great Pacific Northwest, and you are listening to Trex in Sci-Fi. This is episode 591 for Sunday, June 19th, 2016. I'm back this week with another classic science fiction movie. Today's movie is The Man from Planet X. Before I get into this week's podcast, I want to thank Rico for giving me this opportunity to share with all of you another classic science fiction movie. I also want to thank everyone who took the time to listen to me today. I hope you enjoy it. With that said, I'm going to play the trailer to this movie. I'll be back after the trailer with some movie information, and then we'll get into the movie. the glass looking right into mine i was terrified a face a human face a ghastly caricature like something distorted by pressure a horrible grotesque imitation of the face looking right into my eyes to think a fantastic gnome like you had a hurdle out of space put this power into my hands. I'm going to tear out every secret you've got. I'll give you until 11 o'clock to try what you can. If you're not back by that time, we'll open fire. But you've got to at least give us time. By that time, your job must be finished. If it isn't, what's his appearance here mean? At midnight, 
When the planet is at its closest approach to Earth, an invasion will be launched. In 59. The Man from Planet X is an American science fiction movie. It was directed by Edgar G. Ulmer. It was written and produced by Aubrey Wisberg and Jack Polixfin. It stars Robert Clark, Marguerite Field, and William Shallard. It was released April 27, 1951, and has a running time of 70 minutes. And here's the cast, starting at the top. Robert Clark. He plays John Lawrence in today's movie. He was an American actor. He was born Robert Irby Clark on June 1st, 1920 in Oklahoma City, Oklahoma. He started out as a contract player at RKO Studios in 1944. He began freelancing three years later when RKO dropped his contract. In the 1950s and 1960s, he appeared in a couple of classic science fiction movies. He starred in The Incredible Petrified World, The Astonishing She-Monster, The Hideous Sun Demon, Beyond the Time Barrier, and today's movie. He kept busy from the 1950s to the 1980s on television. He has made appearances on shows like Perry Mason, Dragnet, Hawaii Five-O, and Fantasy Island. He published his autobiography, To Be or Not to Be, A Actor's Film Odyssey, in 1996. He passed away June 11, 2005, at the age of 85. Next up, Marguerite Fields. She played Enid Elliott in today's movie. She was an American film actress. She was born May 10, 1922, in Houston, Texas. She was discovered by a talent scout for Paramount Pictures. She passed her screen test and was offered an 18-month contract. She then attended Pasadena Junior College for voice training and acting. She kept busy in television until the 1960s. She is the mother of actress Sally Fields, and she was married to actor Jacques Mahoney. She passed away November 6, 2001, which was her daughter's 65th birthday. Last but not least, William Shallard. He plays Dr. Mears in today's movie. He was an American character actor. He was born William Joseph Shallard on July 19, 1922, in Los Angeles, California. He was the son of Edwin Francis Shallard, a longtime drama critic for the Los Angeles Times, and Elsa Emily Shallard, a magazine writer and a radio host. He began acting as a student at USC. He left USC to become a fighter pilot in the United States Army Air Corps in World War II. He has appeared in many movies and many TV shows. You might not know his name, but when you see his face, you know exactly who he is. He will be most remembered for his role as Patty Duke's father on The Patty Duke Show. He was the Screen Actors Guild president from 1979 to 1981. He kept busy into television into the 2000s. He passed away last month on May 8, 2016 at the age of 93. And that's all the movie information I have. Now let's get into the movie. The movie starts with a newspaper reporter, John Lawrence. He finds out that an unknown planet is headed for the Earth. It began prosaically enough in a college observatory not far from Los Angeles. What is it? A new planet. For want of another name, at present we identify it as Planet X. It was first spotted some weeks ago, rushing out of space. 
Is uh, this the reason Professor Elliot wired me to contact you? Have you known the professor long? Yeah, I was with the 8th Air Force in England. The professor was our chief meteorologist doping out weather for bomber raids. The British led him to us. Good man, Elliot. Oh, the best. He and I became fast friends. He always said if he ever ran across anything of real importance, he'd give me a crack at it. He used to think he was kidding, but I guess not. No, I guess not. Well, what's it all about, Doctor? The world, Mr. Lawrence, is now experiencing strange astronomical phenomena. Reports have come in from all over the globe of inexplicable objects being sighted in the sky. Surely you're not telling me a scientist like yourself believes such nonsense. No, I'm not telling you that. Well, then on what evidence do you base your statement? Unquestionable reports of trained observers. At first, this phenomenon seemed to have no particular focal point. It appeared at random here and there about the world. But about six weeks ago, tremendous concentration was detected over a certain section of the Earth. A particularly barren and isolated area. Burry? Yes, what do you know about it? Well, nothing much except uh, this cablegram I got from Professor Elliot came from there. It says, uh, if you remember my promise for exclusive story, see Dr. Robert Blaine at University Observatory. It's signed Elliot. Strange waves. Resembling, but still not radar waves, have been bouncing off the Earth. Coming from someplace outside, like the moon or Mars, for instance? They're originating on some sphere outside, but not the moon or Mars, any known planet. Well, where does this planet X fit in? What's it rushing towards? The Earth. You mean, you mean it's likely to collide with us? No, at least not a headlong collision. Oh, well, we've had these things before, like uh, Halley's Comet, for instance, oh. to name one. None which have come as close to our world as this one is expected to. In the next three weeks, if our calculations are correct. You uh, think something will happen? I wish I knew exactly. At the best, atmospheric disturbances, hurricanes, probably tidal waves. And at the worst? Where does Professor Elliot fit in? He discovered the planet. Oh, is that why he's in Bury? If he is correct in his deductions, this isolated island is that part of the world the new planet will come closest to. Gee, it sort of makes cold fingers run down my spine. How about you? Uh, this is not visible to the naked eye. Not yet. How do I get to Bury? In the next scene, we see John arrive in Bury, and he is picked up by Professor Elliot's daughter, Enid. You don't remember me, do you? Well, I... Now, uh... isn't that a fine example of how unfaithful men are? The last time I saw you, I got your solemn promise that when I grew up, I could be your girl. Good heavens, Enid Elliot. Well, I... I thought you long enough to recognize me. <laughs> no, the last time I saw you, you were crying because you had to go back to school. All gawky legs and buck teeth. <laughs> I see you do remember me. Braces took care of the teeth. And uh, nature took care of the legs. <laughs> I hadn't thought you'd notice. Yeah, the newspaper man in me. Oh, what a difference six years make. I don't think you've changed. Well, thank you kindly. Or should I thank you kindly? <laughs> Enid takes John to an old castle, which they call a brock, on the moors where her father has been observing the new planet. John is met by Professor Elliot and Dr. Mears. Hey, it's a cozy little place you have here. Serves its purpose. Oh, uh, you remember Dr. Mears by any chance? Mr. Lawrence has forgotten. I forgive him. 
I doubt if he ever expected to see my face again. Frankly, I hadn't given it much thought. Well, Enid and John go off to the kitchen to have some tea, and you can tell that John doesn't like Dr. Mears, and he wonders why Dr. Mears is out there anyway. What I like in talent for cookery, I make up in speed. But I really do brew a fine cup of tea. Well, I hope so. How many of these rooms are there? This one's mine, and there's another one under this. Dr. Mears occupies it. No thanks, you have some. Mm-hmm. Hey, uh, how on earth does he happen to be here? Oh, you know, Father, soft-hearted as a sponge. Mears dropped in on us uh, two weeks ago, pitied he was ill and broke, and jolly well looked it, too. And because he was one of Father's old students. So he's here. Hmm. Just uh, dropped in? Mm-hmm. People don't just drop in here, a place on the edge of the world. I heard he was somewhere in Scotland. He's been in seclusion since that trouble he got into. I feel sort of sorry for him. No, well, you needn't. He should have gotten 20 years. He did go to prison for a while, didn't he? I was just a kid then. Edith and John decide to go for a walk on the moors when they find a strange object. John takes the object back to Professor Elliot so he can examine it. The measurements are singularly precise. What is it? How does it operate if it does or has? Well, you ask more than I'm prepared to answer. A theory might suggest that the inside is hollow. And it might have contained a propulsive element of some kind, a gas perhaps. Look here. The metal is discolored, possibly from the generation of some terrific heat. It's fantastic. Professor, look. Interesting. That should work out at about one-fifth the specific gravity of steel. It could mean millions. Millions if that formula could be reproduced. Wait a minute. I don't know if I follow you. What do you mean if that formula could be reproduced? Where do you assume this came from? Well, my assumption may sound fantastic. It may be fantastic for all I can say. But this object comes out of space. I could not deny the possibility. Do you realize what this metal could mean? It's harder than steel. It has tremendous tensile strength. And it weighs only a fifth as much as steel. A man who controls this formula controls the industry of the world. Before you start spending those millions, Doctor, consider a slight problem. What's that? If the professor's theory bears any fact, you're going to have a little difficulty mining that metal, don't you think? I was speaking metaphorically, of course. You reassure me. Let us concentrate on this remarkable object. Enid then drives John back to town, where he has rented a room. On the way back to the Brock, Enid's car blows a tire. She gets out of the car and starts walking back to the Brock. As she is walking, she sees a flashing light. She goes to investigate the flashing light and finds a spaceship. She looks around the spaceship, and as she looking, looks into one of the portholes, she sees the pilot of the spaceship staring back at her. She is scared to death, and she takes off running. She runs as fast as she can back to the Brock and tells her father what she has just seen. The light flickered on and off. It wasn't very bright, a ghastly greenish color. When I got close to it, it looked like a giant glass ball girdled with something like a steel belt. Three of them, I think. When I got close enough to look in, there it was. It? What? That face, right on the other side of the glass, looking right into mine, I was terrified. Face? A human face? A ghastly caricature, like something distorted by pressure. I can't think how else to describe it. A horrible, grotesque imitation of the face looking right into my eyes. Uh, 
Now, I know you're not given to hysteria, my dear, but your statements have a tinge of fantasy. Now, you... You say you saw this... this hideous face? Yes! And I ran. Really frightened, I guess, for the first time in my life. Hmm. You're not going out there. I'd better take a look. Uh, you have a hot drink and get some sleep. I'll guide you. No, my now, dear. Now, don't argue. I'm quite all right. It was just the first shock. Now you've got me wondering just what I did see. I'm going with you. Enid and her father returned to the spaceship. I can't see much. No face, at least certain of that. What is it? Obviously a creation of science. That's beyond question. But manufactured by whom? And for what purpose? Professor Elliot and Enid start to move away from the spaceship when Professor Elliot is hit by a mind control ray and it turns him into a mindless being. Enid is scared and commands him to come back to the Brock with her. Later, Professor Elliot explains to John that the spaceship has something to do with Planet X. Well, your theory, Professor, is that these singular occurrences are in some way connected with Planet X. Have you a better theory to offer? No, but uh, you'll have to pardon me if it takes me a moment to get my bearings. What do you think this is building up to? Well, I must confess I'm beyond my depth. We have but one theory to work on. In approximately 60 hours, the planet's orbit will bring it into its closest position to this world. And Bury will be the nearest spot on the Earth to the planet, and whatever and whomever is upon it. Sixty hours. Don't you think we'd better notify the police? Well, what should we notify them of? Well, that ball out there, this, this gadget Enid and I found. And defeat everything that we've spent all these weeks in this forsaken spot to achieve, being overrun by the curious? <laughs> Somebody's liable to run onto that thing out there. Oh, it isn't likely. This area of the moors is checkered with marshes. Many a straying farm animal has been swallowed up. This place has a bad name. The natives keep their distance. Where's this ball now? I'll take you. Professor Elliot and John head out to the moors to see the spaceship. And they come face to face with the alien. But the alien seems to be having a problem with his, his gas regulator and almost passes out. And that's when John reaches over and turns the oxygen on for the alien. The alien comes back. And they sit there and they try to communicate with the alien, but they can't. Must have decided we're friendly natives. We've got to find some means of communication. He's capable of sound. Well, it may be an attempt to communicate. It seems hopeless, though. Yeah, looks as if we're up against the blank wall. Well, let's beat it back to the Brock. What, and leave him? Question is, will he let us? It's maddening. Here we have this astounding creature with his vast potential for fabulous knowledge to be given us, and we may only stand and stare at each other. So Professor Elliot and John, they leave the alien at the spaceship and head back to the Brock, only to be followed by the alien. So they bring the alien inside the Brock, and Dr. Mears believes he can find a way to communicate with the alien. You have found a means of communication, Doctor? Yes. What? The common denominator, Professor. The basic and universal language, geometry. By George, Doctor, you've hit it. If anything should warrant success, this should. Excuse me, Professor, you've lost me. I'm the shadowy figure in the left background with a stupid expression on his face. I don't get this mathematics. Well, there may be no scientific achievement without mathematics. In itself, it is the purest language of science. Now, this creature represents an obviously superior race of beings where science is concerned. 
to be able to land on the Earth from a planet whose existence was previously unsuspected. Well, I'm up to you now. If there's anything our friend here should be able to understand that we might use as a bridge to reach him, it's this same basic language, geometry. Precisely. Uh, Professor, uh, this is not an easy formula to devise. Uh, would you I mind? understand, Doctor. Yeah. You need undisturbed concentration. Let us know when you're ready. Come along, John. If you're, uh, you're leaving him alone, I presume your concern arises from fears for my safety, Mr. Lawrence. Uh, spare yourself any anxiety. This creature is as intelligent as we. He knows that we are trying to find a mutual basis for understanding. I'm quite safe. Mears is right. Come, John. Dr. Mears decides that he's going to torture the alien by turning his air supply on and off to get the secrets of the strange metal. Oh. <laughs> to think, a fantastic gnome like you had to hurdle out of space to put this power into my hands. Well, now that we've made contact, I'm going to tear out every secret you've got. The alien manages to escape, and he takes Enid and a couple of villagers with him. He moves his spaceship, and he uses the villagers to fortify around his spaceship. John goes to the village to see the constable and tells him about the alien and the spaceship. That's when one of the villagers comes in in a panic and tells John and the constable about seeing the alien. Rory, what ails your man? Act like you've seen a ghost or something. A ghost? No. Something of flesh and blood. Yet of neither. A horrible, monstrous creature with a head as big as two men put together. A skin with the shine of a new shilling. And eyes that are no better than a dead codfish. Wait a minute. Where'd you see him? Why'd you leave the professor? I didn't leave him. He up and left me. What are you saying? I went to fill the water jug at the well. By the time I was coming back, the professor was walking into the fog with that friend of his who's been stopping with him. Dr. Mears? Aye, that's him. I heard him call by name. What happened? The professor's ill. The other one was helping him. He looked no better than a dead man himself with his glassy eyes. I was afraid, and I followed them. Then, then twas I saw it. It? It what, man? The foggy. Woogie. With a big head and a peculiar hump on his back, he stepped out of the fog a wee bit before the professor and his friend. And I didn't wait to see what else happened. I ran until I thought my heart would burst from my chest. All right, good luck now, good luck. Well, Mr. Lawrence. What do you make of that? It's that creature from out of space. He's got mirrors in his clutches and used him to get the professor into his hands. Chances are that's where you'll find the men from the village, too. Man from space? What clapper-claw is this? John and the constable decide to call Scotland Yard, but the phone lines are out. They use a heliograph to send a message to a passing ship. The ship passes the message on to Scotland Yard, and an inspector and a sergeant are dispatched to Bury. Gentlemen, who are you? Are you in charge of this station, constable? Aye. I'm Inspector Porter. Inspector? This is Sergeant Ferris. Scotland Yard? Yes. Gentlemen, pardon me. Come in, Inspector. Come in. Sit, sit down. Sit we down. were in Edinburgh. We received word from London. Our message did get through. The ship saw us. I... I understand a freight ship relayed to London by a wireless. A message she picked up while passing that was flashed by heliograph. I'm John Lawrence. Oh? American? Newspaper man. Affiliated press. How'd you get here? Small plane. Landed south of the village. Only field without boulders. It took us an hour to trudge here. 
You're a long way from home, Mr. Lawrence. What are you doing here in Bury? <laughs> Sit down, Inspector. I'll try to tell you. John and the constable explain to the inspector what's been going on out at the moors. The inspector calls in the military and gives John until 11 p.m. to rescue the people that the alien has under his control. It's now 9.30. I'll give you until 11 o'clock to try what you can. If you're not back by that time, we'll open fire. But you've got to at least give us time. By that time, your job must be finished. If it isn't... 11 o'clock, Mr. Lawrence. But everyone out there might be annihilated. Enid, the professor, the people from the village, Dr. Mears, everyone. Professor Elliot told you that planet would be within the Earth's gravitational orbit by midnight. The consequences of such an unparalleled proximity could be anything. None of us know what that, that enigma out on the moors might be planning. I, you're right, Inspector. Professor's theory was invasion. We can't risk determining whether it has any fact. A planet of such size, coming so close to ours, might cause a disastrous atmospheric upheaval as well. Therefore, Mr. Lawrence, 11 o'clock. We dare not delay beyond that time. Do you understand? Yeah. Even then, we may be risking too much. All right. 11 o'clock. John sneaks up to the spaceship and rescues Enid, Dr. Mears, and the villagers from the alien. John questions Dr. Mears about the alien's intentions here on Earth. You're able to communicate with the creature, isn't that right? Yes. You found out how to do it in the dungeon back at the Brock. That's all? Yes. What's he doing now? What's his appearance here mean? He's establishing a wireless directional beam to his planet. At midnight, when the planet is at its closest approach to Earth, an invasion will be launched. Why? Why? It comes from a planet that's dying. It's turning to ice. If his people do not escape from the planet before it swings back along its route through space, they will be doomed. How'd they get so close to Earth? They managed to make the planet deviate from its natural orbit by scientific degravitation. What was that object Enid and I found on the moors? It's a magnetically powered rangefinder used to determine the composition of the Earth's atmosphere. It was sent out in advance of the spaceship for experimental purposes. And how does he keep you a slave to his will? By exposing us to a ray. He exposes us to it every few hours. The military destroys the spaceship, killing Dr. Mears and taking away the alien's homing signals. The planet passes by the Earth and heads back into deep space. The Earth is saved, and now John and Edith say goodbye. You're going back with Inspector Porter and his plane, hmm? Yep. But this time tomorrow afternoon, we'll be... Far out over the ocean. Going home. Mm-hmm. I'll miss you. Your father tells me you're coming to California so he can confer with Dr. Blaine. Mm-hmm. Soon. Good. Is it true that no one will ever know what happened here? Knowledge would only bring more fear in a world already filled with it. Can such a thing be kept a secret? No. No, but it can be reduced to gossip. You know, I think that creature was friendly. I wonder what would have happened if... if Dr. Mears hadn't frightened him. Who knows? Perhaps the greatest curse to ever befall the world, or... 
perhaps the greatest blessing. And that's the end of the movie. Now it's time for some movie trivia. Today's movie was the first alien invasion movie, beating Invaders from Mars and the War of the Worlds to the theaters by two years. This movie was filmed in six days on a budget of $41,000. It would go on to make $1.2 million at the box office. Robert Clark's pay for the entire film was $175, which was the SAG minimum. Director Edgar G. Ulmer used sets from the big-budget movie Joan of Arc from 1948. And that's all I have for trivia. Now it's time for the Star Trek connection. Everybody knows I'm a big Star Trek fan, and I try to find a Star Trek connection in every movie and TV show I watch. Today's Star Trek connection is William Shallard. He played Niels Barris in the original series episode, The Trouble with Tribbles. He also appeared in the Deep Space Nine episode, Sanctuary. And that's all I have for the Star Trek connection. Here are my comments about this movie. This movie was on one of those classic science fiction movie four-packs that I picked up from Amazon. It comes with The Angry Red Planet, Beyond the Time Barrier, The Time Travelers, and this movie, The Man from Planet X. There are no extras on this DVD. Nothing. The picture and sound quality are fair. I like this movie. It's not the best movie, but it's a good movie. It was made on a budget of $41,000, which is pretty amazing. You couldn't make that movie today for $41,000. And the movie actually looks like it could have been made in the 1930s. Most of the movie was shot on a soundstage. Like I said earlier, the director used sets and props from the 1948 movie Joan of Arc. He used some really bad matte paintings, miniatures, and lots of fog machines. This movie is only 70 minutes long, so don't blink. You will miss something. But it has a good story. Think about it. An alien from a frozen planet lands in a Scottish island, and the question is, is he friend or foe? That sounds like a beginning of a great movie. It's too bad they didn't have a budget of a This Island Earth or a Forbidden Planet. As far as the actors, Robert Clark and Margaret Field, they did a good job. But the one who really stood out to me was William Shallard. He is great as a villain. I've never seen him in a role as a villain, ever. This, actually, this is the only time I've ever seen him play as a villain. But usually you see him as somebody's grandfather, somebody's dad, somebody who owns the gas station in town or the grocery in town. This is totally out of character for him. And in today, in this movie, he's really good as a bad guy. I mean, he's always lurking in the shadows, listening the best scene in the movie is when he, he and the alien are alone and he's about to torture the alien by turning his oxygen on and off. That's just plain evil. And speaking of the alien, the alien looked like a kid in a rubber suit with a huge paper mache head inside of a bubble helmet with some plumbing equipment on the side. And that's one thing I always wanted to know was, you're an alien, you're on, a new, you're on another planet. Why would you put your, your oxygen valve or gas valve so far that you could barely reach it? Wouldn't it be on your waist so you could grab it if you needed to? That never made sense to me, but you know what? It's a plot device to get the story moving. I understand that. 
uh, the spaceship looked like a big Christmas tree ornament to me. I mean, I could go to my mom's basement and pull out a, one of those ornaments on the top of the tree, and it looks just like the spaceship. Um, it's a good movie. I mean, I like it. Overall, I think it's a good movie, and I like it. It's a classic sci-fi B-movie, and I would recommend this movie to all science fiction fans. Like I said, I picked it up for five bucks on Amazon, and you get four movies, so that's not a bad deal. If you like sci-fi B-movies, this is the DVD for you. And those were my comments about this movie. And before I wrap up this week's podcast, I want to thank Rico again for giving me this opportunity to share with all of you another classic science fiction movie. I also want to thank everyone who took the time to listen to me today. I hope you enjoyed it. Rico will be back on the podcast next week. He will be covering the Enterprise episode, Fallen Hero. I'll be back soon with another classic science fiction movie. Until then, everyone take care. This is M5 signing off.